0: let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, and this will conclude our study through both books of Thessalonians today, and uh, today um, I want to talk to you, I I promised this in the last class, so we're going to be talking about um, preparing your resume, and um, some of you have had to do that. Uh, fortunately, I have not. Um, I did. I actually have done it, but um, I wasn't hired anywhere I submitted it. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about my resume. If you were fired on Friday, this coming Friday, and you had to go and look for a job the following Monday... You'd have to write out a resume. That's what is traditionally done in this country. And you want to be able to uh, do a good resume. A resume gives some personal information about your name and contact information and all that. And then a traditional resume has a brief summary of why you would be the perfect fit for the job you're applying for. Just remember that if you're sending the resume to some to multiple companies, that you change why you would be the perfect fit for that other company. Because if you're submitting it to Safeway and you have Lucky's on there, you know, why you would make a perfect, uh, you know, Lucky's uh, employee, you may not get hired. Maybe you would. And then next, you want to highlight, you know, your top skills, what makes you the perfect candidate, what skills do you have that will benefit the company, and, and so on. And then there's a section that outlines your job experience and your history at these jobs and what you've accomplished to make these companies successful. And, uh, you know, you probably already have your, uh, your, your um, personal statement and, and history and skills listed on LinkedIn because that's the... Uh, the the connection on the internet now that you have to have. Uh, I would probably take Facebook off, your account of Facebook off, because employers are now looking at those sorts of things. Then there's, um, uh, you include your education and any other, you know, stuff that makes you stand out in the crowd. Well, in this chapter, Paul actually gives for us his resume. And uh, he gives it to the Thessalonians. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to give you my resume, okay? So normally speaking, um, when a job applicant starts the resume, now you can't read all this, and that's done on purpose. This is just sort of like a kind of a what if it looks like this resume. Uh, Normally, a job applicant starts from the most recent work. In other words, I am currently employed. I'm not a bum looking for a job. I am employed and very employable. But I need a better job, better paying job, because that will bring me happiness. Oh, no, no, we talked about that last class. That doesn't bring happiness, all right? So the, uh, they usually start from the most recent and then work back in history uh, the other way. Well, I am going to do it the opposite way today. I'm going to start from my oldest work and then move forward to my current work, um, So, the first job that I can remember ever having is uh, an industrial, horizontal, concrete enhancer. That was the title I made up for it. And that was in 1965 when I was seven years old. And basically, I was a uh, floor sweeper. I also became a a master uh, bristle equipment engineer, which uh, is the next picture, Jake. Thank you. And a 45-gallon drum packer. Um, Then I advanced in my work and my, my job career at this place. I was working for a company called Ardco Limited, which happened to be my father's company. And uh, I became a vertical liquid color applicator. And, uh, Jake, got to wake up. Thank you. Try it. It's not working right. Okay. So a, I, I still do that from time to time. And as some of you know, um, I, I helped to paint some of the walls in the, in the chapel here. And as I think it was John Rosendahl who said once when he saw all this color mixing together, he said how do you get away with uh, doing a bad paint job and, 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 and uh, you know, getting away with it? The idea was that, you know, usually we like just one solid color, and uh, I was kind of mixing things up. So, then after I turned 12, I uh, ventured out into the world uh, employment, and I be- became a print news media distributor. Um, Sometimes people call them paper boys. Now, I want to tell you something about uh, growing up as a paper boy. When I came down to the United States and I saw the way papers were delivered, I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled. I was trained, and we had to do this. I, I delivered the afternoon newspaper, and it was a requirement that the newspaper had to be on the porch and usually under the mat. We have winds in Vancouver, and we have rain in Vancouver. None of this drop it off at the bottom of the driveway, let the people go get it. Are you kidding me? I said, how lazy can they be? You know. But my boss required us, if it was a windy day or it was a stormy day, you had to not only get off your bicycle and go up, put it under the mat. He said, no. If they have a screen door, you open that screen door. You put the paper in behind it, slam it quick. And he says, that way the the paper is protected. And he wouldn't have to go and deliver dry papers to uh, the people that didn't uh, get dry papers. So that was one thing. We had rains. We had lots of rains in Vancouver. It rained almost every day. That's why it's so green up there. And so I learned what it meant to deliver in, uh, in, in pouring, pouring rain. But we also had snow. And it's very hard to ride a bicycle in snow. Sometimes I did it, not too successfully. My dentist thanks me for that. <laughs> Instead, I used a toboggan. And I would put my paper sacks on the toboggan and I would haul the rope around my neck and I would pull the toboggan to the next place and then go deliver the papers that way. In those days, uh, you know, I, I know I'm sounding really old when I say that, <laughs> but you know, this whole idea of automatic billing never heard of it. People didn't have a lot of credit cards back then. Um, and to pay in advance for your newspaper never happened, never happened. It was the responsibility of the paper boy to deliver the papers through the month, and then at the end of the month, go and collect from the customers. And so I'm delivering the evening newspaper, and then I can't do it during the delivery, that's against the rules, because that would slow down the delivery of the people who want their paper by five o'clock. And so I'd have to go home and eat supper, and then I'd go back out in the darkness of night, and I'd have to go and try to collect. But what if people aren't home that night? Well, guess what? It's still my responsibility to go back out there and collect the next night. And if they're still not there, you keep going until you do collect. And if you don't, co- don't collect, guess whose problem it is? It's not the newspaper's fault. It's your fault for not collecting. You take the loss on it, not the newspaper, okay? You say, wow, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. We also had a very strong newspaper union, not that I'm speaking against unions, But in Vancouver, it was a very strong union, and they would regularly go on strike or slowdowns, and they would just delay the newspaper. But as a paper boy, you would have to sit in the paper shack until those newspapers got there. If it meant one hour, five hours, midnight, it didn't make any difference. You had to be there. Did you get paid extra for it? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Am I complaining? No. I want to tell you something, and I want you to understand something about work. God teaches us valuable character lessons in the workplace. Do you know that God forms our character just as much, maybe more, in the workplace as he does here sitting in a pew? Do you realize that? So I want to go back just a step. You don't have to change the pictures again. When I was an industrial horizontal concrete enhancer, I was learning in the school of humility. It's one of the lessons you learn when you sweep the floors after everybody just drops stuff all over the place and it's your job to pick up after them. It's called humility. The school of humility. And then when it came time to um, uh, be the, the paper boy, it was the school of endurance. Whether it was waiting for papers to get there, whether it was working in the snow or the rain, trying to collect money from people late into the, the night, the school of endurance. I probably worked for 10 cents an hour, 25 cents an hour, maybe, you know, working that. I thought I was rich. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. I had my independence. I was an entrepreneur or something like that. Well, anyway, then I moved on to a ripe age of 12 to 18 years old. So from 1970 to 1976, I became the uh, construction site superintendent of byproduct management, which uh, one of the jobs that I had was, this is a picture of somebody digging uh, digging in the dirt. And there are byproducts left over when you dig the dirt. You put it into buckets and the buckets have to be dumped. And one of the jobs that uh, I had for a summer was working on a construction site for an art gallery. And this man was very well known in in, uh, Vancouver as one of the leading art um, sellers. And uh, he uh, he was redoing his entire art gallery. Beautiful, beautiful building. But the basement was very, very uh, low and it was useless. And so he had this property in a prime location. He thought, how can I get more square footage out of this building? I know. I will dig a basement under the building. And I know who I can get. There were no stairs to this uh, place. You actually had to climb down a ladder. And you could not get any equipment down there apart from literally a bucket and a shovel. And so there were two of us, myself and another guy, And uh, outside of the building was a dumpster. And so we would go down into the pit, as we would call it, and we would take shovelfuls and fill the buckets. Then the other guy would climb the ladder, and he would rope the, the bucket up to the top, the next floor, dump it into a wheelbarrow, and stuff it back down in the hole. And we did this over and over again until the wheelbarrow was full. And then it was his responsibility to wheel that out through the building to the back, dump it into the dumpster. And to give you an idea of the amount of work this was, or the amount of stuff we moved, they have these low low dumpsters that are meant for gravel and, and heavy um, materials. We would fill it. And then this massive truck would come, you know, to pick up the thing on its back. It was so heavy that the truck front tires would literally come right off the ground and they were not too happy with us and would tell us you know, not to fill it so high the next time, which we would do because we just love to see it happen, you know. <laughs> and that was uh, my summer, working on the pit. So what was my school there? I would say it's the school of brokenness because by the end of the summer, I was broken. And uh, yet it was a good experience, a good experience for me. The byproduct, obviously, was dirt that was dumped in the dumpsters. Well, after that job, um, I moved up and I became the head of housing tract byproduct transfer, working for the same company. And uh, this was construction on housing tracts. We were building houses. I didn't know too much about building houses back then, but I learned a fair bit during the summer and holidays and all that. And... um, So my job was to go after school or on the weekends, and all the construction debris that was lying around the sites, I would go and I'd have to pick up all the nails and two by fours and junk plywood and all this sort of stuff and put it in the back of a pickup truck and haul it off to the dump. So that was my construction site superintendent of byproduct management. Then I became smarter in my old age, and at 16 years old, I had my own van at this point, and I had a, a younger cousin, he was 15, and we got talking one day and we said, hey, why don't we start our own business? He goes, great idea. What's it going to be? I said, well, let's cut lawns. We'll, we'll cut lawns. But we can't just cut lawns. We have to set ourselves apart from every other lawn cutter in the city. And so we're going to advertise our lawn cutting. He goes, great. What are we going to call ourselves? I said, well, let's call ourselves Custom Cut Lawn Service. And we'll get cards printed out and we'll advertise in the local newspaper. And so we did. We threw, you know, everything we had at it. I think we had, you know, 10 bucks each or whatever. And uh, we borrowed our parents' lawnmowers. I had been working at shop in uh, school and I had learned how to work uh, uh, engines and how to fix them and tune them and all that sort of thing. And, and so we started off, we'd throw everything in the back of my van and we started getting phone calls from people. And they, you know, I mean, we're a pretty impressive two-man crew. It's not a bad name either, is it? Custom cut lawn service. And then we decided, even at that young age, we're going to have a motto. And our motto is going to be this. You grow it, we mow it. You know? <laughs> pretty impressive little kids, you know? So that was our two summers. And we got pretty proficient at it. We charged a healthy price for cutting lawns. And we would, we would work as hard as we could possibly work in the morning until about noon, and then we'd go down to the beach, and we'd spend the rest of the day on the beach. So that was our, uh... but it was another school that I went to, to, uh, and I gained from this school. It's the School of Responsibility, and we learned a lot during those two years uh, dealing with people, and we learned from the School of Diligence as well. Well, I wanted to fix my van up, and actually use it for things other than grass clippings. And so we stopped the business and I decided to take a real job this time. And I began to work as a petroleum transfer initiator, which um, otherwise known as a gas jockey. Uh, At this place that I worked, it was a, um, a department store. They also had a gas station. And um, I learned not only how to pump gas, but also in those days, you didn't get out of your car and pump your own gas. People pumped it for you. And in Oregon, by the way, that's still the law. You cannot get out of your car and pump your own gas. They have to pump it for you. So I learned how to pump gas, which is no big deal. Um, But I also was able to get into the shop they had there too. And I learned how to uh, take tires off of rims and put new tires on and change batteries and fix different things in the car. Brakes, the people who cars I like, put new brakes on never returned, which I think means that they were done right or else they had an accident and couldn't return. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but we learned some things in the shop as well. And so during that time, it was the school of service. You had to serve People, And that was one of the lessons learned. And I want you to think about the jobs that you've had, the things that you've done in your life. What are the lessons that God has been teaching you um, about your character? If you chafe under work, it's probably because God is trying to teach you a lesson. He's trying to teach you something in your character that needs to be changed. And uh, it's good for you. Well, I'll stop with the pictures and I'll just go on with my resume. The next was um, working for Acadian Cabinet Pack Kitchens, and I was an apprentice learning the cabinet-making trade, and um, that was good, except I have allergies to uh, cut wood and sawdust, and that, uh, I was absolutely miserable, um, and so I had to stop, and I went into sales, and, and ultimately I was um, between the ages of 19 and 21. And during the time that I worked there, um, I had never been a salesman other than trying to sell newspapers. And um, the Lord um, blessed in in a great way, and I actually became the lead salesman and one of the top salesmen of um, all branch offices in North America uh, at this place. We were actually a... uh, a branch office, and there were branch offices all over the U.S. and Canada, or at least all over the U.S. We had our own in Canada, and, um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I became a sales manager, job supervisor. But then in 1978, <clears throat> something remarkable happened. The Lord saved my soul, and it changed my entire outlook in life totally and completely. And it was rather dramatic, and it was rather quick. And the Lord really got a hold of me and began to show me that really, is this what you want to live for? You want to live for selling um, product to people? You want to live for making a name for yourself, making a living this way? I have something better. And verses like, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, haunted me uh, constantly. And I, I sensed the call of the Lord in my life, even at that age. I learned through one of my elders in 1978. I was 20 years old. Um, he, um, he said to me, hey, there's a conference that is taking place on Vancouver Island. I'd like you to go with me. And during the time at this conference, some of the brothers from Fairhaven were actually up in um, Vancouver Island teaching at this conference, and I learned about the Discipleship Intern Training Program. And I said to the elder at the time, I said, you know, this is really interesting to me, where I could, you know, plug myself in, get a a solid biblical uh, training. And um, I said, what do you think? He says, I think it's a good idea. So I applied. I didn't get in that year. I got in the following year, 1979. And I moved to California at that time and went through the nine-month program program. After the program was over, I traveled overseas with Bill McDonald and, and uh, Paul and Helen Flint, who were, um, he was a teacher at MAS and she was his wife. We traveled to 13 countries in three months, and one night in a tent in Vichy, France, Bill asked me if I would consider coming down to the U.S. and living here permanently and working with him and working with the interim program. I told him, you know what, I'll see what my elders say. I'm going to seek the counsel of my elders. And I've told you this story, I'm sure, but I went back and I talked to my elders and this is what I said to them. I said, you are my elders. God has given you responsibility for my soul. One day you are going to give an account of my life before the Lord. And I want you to do that with joy. I said, one day I'm going to stand before the Lord, you're going to stand before the Lord, and the Lord is going to ask you about my life. I said, I want you to do that with joy. So whatever you tell me to do, here is the opportunity that is before me. Here is what is being asked of me. This is what I want to do, but I am going to submit my will to yours. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And of course, I I, I was sure that with an opportunity like this, They were just going to sign me off and say, go for it, you know, go in peace and, you know, enjoy the rest of your life. And I said, what do you think? They said, no. And I didn't change the countenance on my face because I had committed it to the Lord that whatever the answer was, I was going to take it with joy. And I said, what do you want me to do? They said, we want you to go back and get a job. And we want you to work at your job, and whatever opportunities are here at the chapel to to do, do them with all your might. But that's our counsel to you. That's it. Nothing more? Nothing more. Okay, that's what I'll do. And so at the time, um, I got a job at a delicatessen, and that lasted for about a month, not because uh, I didn't know how to make sandwiches, but because there was a fire at the uh, delicatessen one night, and uh, I lost my job that way. And then I went into, went back to my father's company, and I uh, basically I took over the business. And um, he was involved in other things, and so I became the general manager and the sales manager, sales training, job supervision, product development. In fact, I was we we began to do uh, radio advertisements uh, during my time there, and um, I was the voice of the Kitchen Idea Center. And so I'd go down to the radio studios, and I would voice the commercials. And one day I had, I was sitting at my desk at the uh, office, and a lady called up, a customer, and and she said, um, I said, uh, you know, Kitchen Idea Center. This is Don. May I help you? And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And I said, Hello, this is Don. May I help you? And she said. Um, <laughs> I said, are you okay? She says, I'm speaking to a star. (laughs) I said, nobody thinks of me that way. (laughs) And we established a new product line and so on. The the company was actually on the brink of collapse. And the Lord allowed me in that nine-month period that I was there to turn the entire business around and put it on a profitable footing And I don't credit myself for that. I credit the Lord for what he did during that time. Um, It still exists to this day. So Bill, so at the end of the nine months, my elders called me in again, and they said, do you remember that meeting we had with you nine months ago? I said, yeah, I do. Do you remember what we told you? I said, I certainly do. Now, during that nine-month period, not only was I working, but every opportunity I had at the assembly um, I threw myself into all of the work there. And so I began to teach, and I began to hold classes, and I began to instruct and to disciple and so on. Everything that was given to me, I did with all my might because that was really my priority, serving the Lord. The job was the, food, was the money to put food on the table. But at the end of the nine months, my elders said to me, um, you remember the meeting we had? I said, of course I do. And they said, I said, Aren't I following what you asked me to do? I mean, I thought I was in trouble. And they go, no, no, you have been. If the opportunity still exists, we're, re- we're willing to release you now to the work of the Lord. I said, what? And they go, we were testing you. When you came back, we wanted to see if really the Lord could use you in whatever circumstances we threw your way. And he, they said, we are convinced that the Lord can and we're willing to release you to the work. I said, wow (laughs) I wasn't expecting that but the opportunity was still there I called Bill I told him he said well he said let me describe the job to you he said there's a there was a um, an airline I can't remember the name of the airline that uh, used to have as its motto come fly with us do you remember that so Bill knew about that airline, and I don't think he mentioned it, but, but the motto was the same. He said, what we can offer to you in this job, he says, is, is our motto. I said, what is that? He said, come starve with us. <laughs> I said, I'm willing to do that. If this is where the Lord wants me, I don't care. Um, and so I came down and uh, handled the administration of the program and entered, it, uh, entered into the classroom set- setting and became a Bible teacher there as well. Well, it was interesting. During the time, I had goals. I was always sort of a goal-oriented person. And um, they gave me, I think, three or four books to teach the first year while I was sort of getting my feet wet and, and handling the administration and so on. And um, at the end of the, the nine months, I said to them, is it possible for me to teach something different next year? And they said, well, we kind of like you'd have the consistency. And I said, yeah, I know that. But I said, I have a goal. And I said, well, what's your goal? And I said, well, my goal is that by the time I reach 30 years old, I want to have taught through the entire Bible. And I said, so I, I need to get moving. And so they said, all right, we'll work with you on that goal. And they graciously gave up classes they had that they would normally teach year after year to me so that I could continue to grow in my understanding of the Scripture and teaching through the Bible. I served as a deacon and then as an elder in this assembly. And during that time, we began a worldwide distribution of Christian literature. Due to medical issues, um, I stepped aside from being an elder and from the DITP in in, um, 1992, but continued teaching as the Lord um, made it available. It was interesting that during... Um, the illness um, I had more free time on my hands than I knew what to do with and I'm not real good with free time and so I need to do stuff I can't be sitting idle it just irritates me to no end and maybe part of that is you know the muscles that are still twitching from digging that hole under the art gallery I'm not sure what it is but I, I can't sit still I've got to be doing something I'm more like Martha than I am Mary. You know, um, Martha, Martha, you know, you're busy about so many things, but that's just who I am. That's the way I am. During that time, we had already uh, been involved in getting literature out to missionaries around the world, and we decided, uh, the Lord really opened doors for us to begin to uh, publish and to distribute Christian literature in a much broader way than we had before that. We, as many of you know, we um, began DNK Press and we functioned out of 750 square feet of space and we distributed literature. Our address list actually peaked at one point at over 150,000 people. We had uh, literature that we distributed in 55 languages and the hours that we put into that work was absolutely grueling. Um, so much could be done so much faster today than then, but we did what we could with what we had available at the time. And I remember, you remember dot matrix printers? Most of you young people have no idea what I'm talking about. Dot matrix printer, what is that? It's a printer with a head on it that either had nine pins and uh, it would print across a line and you'd go, remember that sound? Yeah, well, if you had a really good one, you had I forget what the maximum head count was or pin count was on it, but it might have been eighteen or twenty four or something like that, and that was just more noise you know so <clears throat> we developed our own mailing list and and we did everything in-house and so I would always try to accomplish more things with as little time as possible, so it's multitasking, and, and so I would say, okay, I'm gonna to go to bed at one o'clock in the morning. That was kind of a quite a usual time, and uh, as, as I was going to bed, I would put the computer on to print out 5,000 labels. You could get a, fi- a box of 5,000 labels, and it would run through the machine, and we would print 5,000 addresses, And I think it took three hours for my printer to do 5,000 labels. And so I'd go to bed, and in the background I'd be hearing, I can't sleep at night without that noise now. (laughs) And for um, three hours or whatever it was, it would be, you know, and then when it would stop, I'd wake up. (laughs) And uh, I'd get up and I'd change the label, put a new ribbon in, and uh, start it up again, and away it would go. So that by the next day, I'd have 10 or 15,000 labels printed that we could then take down to the print house and affix them to the catalogs that we were putting out. And um, we we did, I handled, and, and Krista was there with me in all of this. We, we remodeled the home. We had a growing family. Uh, Tom and Mary invited us into their home one night after we had a fire at our house. They graciously gave us um, beds to sleep in. And uh, that night, I thought I was seeing the entire... We had just finished remodeling the house, by the way. Everything was completely finished, tidied up. We were hanging curtains. That was the last step. And the business was on the uh, ground level, and the fire started up above, and we tried as desperately as we could to put it out with fire extinguishers and flour and different things like that, and nothing happened. Got the kids out, obviously. And uh, I sat in the front house. I remember sitting down on the curb waiting for the fire department to get there, and I said, Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I said, if you're taking it away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I had no idea what would happen, whether they would be able to get it out or not. They did. I mean, it was a minor fire. It only was $98,000 worth of damage. Um, But downstairs, even though the upstairs stunk of smoke and the downstairs living area smelled of smoke, where the books were, nothing smelled of smoke. Completely free of of any scent of smoke at all. You would never have known that there had been a fire. And I said, Lord, only you could do that. I remember Daniel was a baby, and uh, he was upstairs when the fire broke out. And the fire was upstairs. And I remember going in the room that he was in the next day with Bill McDonald, and his crib was against one of the walls. And I kid you not, when you went in that room and you looked at that wall, there was smoke all around the crib, but nowhere where he was. And there's no question, Bill said to me at the time, he says, an angel of God was here last night. <laughs> I said, yeah. You're here, Daniel. So, praise the Lord for what he did. Well, the business continued to grow. We needed more space. We ended up buying a house in Castor Valley that we have um, now. And we ended up building a second house on the property for my parents to live in. Just as we were nearing completion of the of the building, of the house for my mom and dad to live in. My mom calls me, she says, can't come. I said, why? She says, I have cancer. And she said, it's probably treatable, but she said, um, at my age, with a preexisting health condition, trying to get insurance in the US, we have free, free coverage in Canada. She says, trying to get it in the US, she said it would be so costly that it wouldn't be worth it. And so we had this extra house on our hands now, why? And so we began to, I remember talking to um, um, a brother who had uh, properties uh, that he rented out as vacation rental properties. And I said to him, I said, what do you think about running a vacation rental in Castro Valley? And he fell on the floor laughing. He laughed and laughed and he, he says, this is a joke, right? I go, no. I said, what do you think about it? He says, it would never work. And laughed and laughed and laughed about it. I said, okay, I'll try it. (laughs) We are now in our 10th year. And uh, we have um, had over 4,000 guests. I think it's closer to 4,500 from more than 40 countries of the world. During that time, or during the last 10 years, the Lord has allowed me to serve, to teach, to preach, to develop course material, to help with the construction of the building and to serve him. And that's my heart's delight. That's what I want to do with my time. All this other stuff on my job resume is a means of putting food on the table. I've had the privilege of serving once again as an elder in the assembly, but I don't share that alone. And there are two very hard-working guys that work alongside of me. Howard Ormsby and Eric Shork. and I heard one from one of the saints recently. He said, "I don't know of anybody in the world or anybody that I've ever met that works harder than Eric." And I said, "I think you're right, you know? We carry on the responsibility, and I want to thank the Lord for their tireless effort uh, on your behalf as well, and on my behalf. Uh, besides that, besides the work that they do as elders, they carry on a full-time workload uh, at their jobs. They're hard-working men who work um, from morning till night. And they could stand up here and give you their full resumes too, and it'd be much more impressive than mine. So what is the point of me sharing my resume with you? It's The only reason I'm doing mine is is because Paul couldn't make it this morning. Okay? Otherwise, he'd be here giving his resume to you. But he has written about it here in Thessala- to the believers at Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalo- Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. So first we have to figure out what does Paul mean when he says disorderly? What does that mean? And he says that there may be brothers who walk disorderly, and he says that he and the church planting team that came to Thessalonica do not walk disorderly. But if we skip down to verse 11, we learn exactly what he means by that. He says there, for we hear... That there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So we see that Paul is talking about people who are leeches. They mooch off of people. They sponge off of people. They are not diligent. They have not gone to the school of diligence or hard work. Um, They're lazy. And yet... They expect the saints to support them. And um, my dad used to say of people like this, these people aren't afraid to work. They could lie down and go to sleep beside work any day of the week, you know? And that's what these people are like. And Paul is warning the Thessalonians not to keep company with such people. Now you say, well, what about the scripture that teaches us that if somebody asks, we are to give? We're to show mercy. We're to be kind hearted, tender hearted. Well, Paul is clearly warning the Thessalonians not to permit the lazy, disorderly type of people um, to, to, get, to get away with it. There is a term that is used in um, our day and age, and I like the term it's, it's uh, the term enabler. Have you heard that before? Somebody is an enabler. What is an enabler? An enabler, and I'll quote this from the dictionary, is a person who encourages or enables negative or self-destructive behavior in another person. When you allow another person to exert no productive effort and yet you provide the benefits of your hard work to them, you are an enabler. You are enabling them to succeed without any effort. And that's not what we we see taught in the scripture. Paul says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just Paul's command. He He is commanding them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, on the Lord Jesus Christ's behalf, that you withdraw from lazy people. There are a lot of people who know how to take advantage of Christians and the kindness of Christians. And if this person is a so-called brother, then we are to back away. It says that very clearly. Why? Because It's because the brother is walking in a disorderly way. He is out of step, certainly with the lifestyle of the Lord Jesus Christ, The Lord Jesus Christ was up early in the morning. He was up late at night, and he was working the works of his Father while it was day. He says that. And so he is a person that we see in the Scripture who was bent on working, but the right kind of work. He was working for his Father. He is out of step with the lifestyle of the Lord. He's out of step with the apostles and other believers. Of that generation, it says that they turned the world upside down. With the gospel that they preached. A person who is lazy is a poor representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a poor representative of Christian diligence and discipline. He does not have a strong work ethic, and we are not to support people like that. One of the qualifications, it's interesting, you say, well, what about widows? Widows are people who may not be able to work. You know, they're past their prime in the workplace and uh, they, they um, may not be able to, to work anymore. Well, actually, it's interesting. First Timothy 5.10 says that she needs to present her resume to, it, to you, to us as an assembly. What's her resume? Um, before she's supported by the church, she has to have a good work ethic. This is what it says in First Timothy 5.10, that she is well-reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Paul whips out his own resume to the Thessalonians and he reminds them of how he and his companions served tirelessly. Bill MacDonald writes in his commentary, the tradition which the Thessalonians received from Paul, was one of tireless industry, hard work, and self-support. Well, let's continue with his resume. He said, "'Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us.'" For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It's interesting to me that the Lord Jesus Christ was one who taught many things by parable, many things by illustrations. And Paul is basically saying here, look, I am a living illustration. God placed me in your midst as a living illustration of how you ought to live. And the Lord has done the same thing here for our assembly. We have three hard-working elders. And we are living illustrations of how you ought to conduct yourself in life. You should be disciplined. You should be orderly. You should be uh, functioning properly. Paul talks about how he labored and toiled night and day. Long sleepless nights. Long days. It goes with the territory of serving the best of masters. Last night I went to bed after 1.30 in the evening in the morning. I'll say that because you're going to say 1.30? <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> 1.30 in the morning. I woke up at 5.30 and I've been up since working on sermons, working on preparation for classes, working for your sake. I'm not boasting. I'm not patting myself on the back. That's not the point of it. This is the living illustration that God has placed here for your sake. When I hear saints say to me, there's nothing to do. I'm going, are you kidding me? Open your eyes. Jesus said that the harvest is white. The the fields are white to harvest. There is so much work to be done. What's the problem? The laborers are few. Why? Is it because there aren't enough laborers? No, that's not the problem. It's because people are looking around and going, there's nothing to do. I don't know where I fit. I can't do anything. Well, start like I did. Start with sweeping the floors, and the Lord will build you up from there. Okay? There are lessons in humility that need to take place. When you're saying there's nothing to do, you're really saying, I am so important that if I don't get the premier spot, I'm not doing anything. Okay? You can't have an attitude like that in Christian service. Listen, if I look back at my career and my resume, and I think of what I did to earn 25 cents a newspaper and I would brace against winds and rain and sleet and snow to deliver a crazy newspaper that was here today and gone tomorrow, how much more should I serve my master diligently? Because the rewards literally are out of this world. Serve the Lord with gladness and fullness of heart, considering the rewards that he has already given you and the rewards that are yet to come. I don't understand when people say, I have nothing to do. Really. I don't understand why people spend more time in the workplace and more diligence in the workplace than they do in serving the Lord. It's like the Lord's work is second. It's like the Lord's work, well, you know, if I get around to it, you know, I'll give you a round to it if you want that, okay? You've seen those, right? Round circle with the word to it in it. I'll give you one. If that's what you're waiting for, I'll give you one, okay? Serve the Lord. You know, the Bible says, seek first The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, what things? Your food, your shelter, your covering will be added to you. So as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, take a look at those passages and see what the Lord is really saying. The most important thing in life is to serve him first. Not your employer, not your boss. It doesn't mean that you're lacking in diligence at the workplace. Of course you put in time and effort there, and you do it with all your might because you are serving the Lord at work too. But seek his kingdom first. And I want to ask you, to whom have I been a burden? Whose life or resources have been shortchanged for my sake? If I have been lazy, if I have been a slacker or a moocher, then do not feed me. If anyone will not work, Paul says, neither shall he eat. And he makes a good point. Paul was against being an enabler, and he was against people being enablers. Um, that should be our stance too. He says in verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. It's actually, you don't get this in the English, but in the Greek, it's actually a play on words here. And it's something like this if we could paraphrase it this way. There are some who are not busy doing work but are busy bodies in everybody else's work. Or as someone wrote, minding everybody's business but their own. And that's what Paul is speaking against. These are people who are not diligent about finding profitable things to do but instead make everybody else's day unprofitable because they won't mind their own business. Verse 12, Now those... Who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So he's basically saying, look, get to work. <laughs> Go out and get a job. You need help with a resume? I'll help you. Okay? Now, I have not been successful with resumes. So speak to somebody who has. Maybe the, Howard, he's good at that. He looks at resumes all the time. He'll help you with resumes. Sorry about that, brother. But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. You know, it's it's easy to look around and say, where is everybody? (laughs) You know, where is everybody in the work of the Lord? Why aren't able-bodied believers helping? And Paul says here, don't grow weary in well-doing. The Lord will reward your service for him. So the clear teaching of this passage is that we are to be industrious people. We need to work hard for our daily necessities, and not grow weary in doing good. Verse 14, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. Yet, he says, Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him. This is actually a form of discipline. It's a form of church discipline. It's not at the same level as somebody who is excommunicated, but it's right, right up there. It's basically saying, as a group of believers, we need to be united in one thing, that we do not become enablers. Okay, Do not support those who are seeking to not do anything and yet seeking a reward for it. There's another word that hits the nail on the head that is a word that is floating around America a lot today and that's the word entitlement. You like that word? Entitlement. And it's inherent, so entitlement is this, again a dictionary meaning, this is the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or of special treatment. Sometimes we use it this way, she has a sense of entitlement, meaning that she thinks she deserves whatever you give to her why just because she does there doesn't have to be a reason just because i asked you need to well here's a busybody's entitlement a busybody is entitled to eat if he works otherwise don't feed him and if he won't then the saints are entitled to avoid the brother and not keep company with him, this is to shame him into working. It's a form of discipline. But again, Paul is saying here, don't treat him like an enemy. He's a brother. And warn him or admonish him to, to um, fall into line. Paul ends with uh, his own note to the believers. And uh, I think part of verses 16 through 18 may be written here to, um, from Paul personally to show that this letter is actually from Paul. If you remember earlier on in the chapter, or earlier on in the book, Paul was uh, warning them against letters that had come to them um, purported to be from Paul, but were not. And Paul is saying, unlike the forged letters, this one is sent in Paul's name with his own handwriting. Verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. With that, we will close. We will finish the book. Go out and work for the master. All right, let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we think of uh, employers, we think of masters, we think of bosses who are corrupt and evil and wicked and do things that's just irritate us to no end and yet we think of serving you and you are the best of masters i think of what it says in the scripture about a servant who takes his ear to the doorpost and has an all driven through it and he says i will not go out free i love my master and lord we think of you and we think of what you've done for us we don't want to be free we want to be your servants we want to be ones who are diligent in the service of our God. Lord, as we think of the psalmist who said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in tents of wickedness. Lord, we want that to be our attitude, that whatever you give us to do, whether it's sweeping the floor, holding open a door, emptying the garbage, providing food, teaching, preaching, whatever it is, Lord, we want to do it with all of our might, and serve you first, and seek your kingdom first, and ask you, Lord, that you might provide our daily necessities after that. We cry out to you, Lord, that you might be honored through these words. In Jesus' name, amen.